New home, new me. That's what they say, right? If you can change your circumstances, you can change your life. At least that's what I'm gonna tell myself. My life was stagnant anyway. After my marriage ended and Aunt Marjorie left me with this dusty old house, I didn't really know what to do with myself. I thought I would just sell it, but then I saw it and I fell in love. It's old and crumbly, but sometimes I feel like maybe I am too. And maybe we both deserve a little attention, you know? Remodeling is so tedious though, and I'll admit it's more time consuming than I thought it would be, but I don't know, I really love it. This room is the parlor. You can tell because the doors are wider than the rest of the doorways in the house. That's because back then, when the house was built, if a member of the household died, their funeral would be held in this room and the doorway would have to accommodate the casket and the people carrying it. Morbid, right? I feel like I'm also discovering a whole new Aunt Marjorie in the process. It's so weird. She hid ashtrays in the vents. I had no idea she even smoked. See where the walls under the wallpaper are yellow? And there were love letters in the attic from a man that was definitely not my Uncle Wally. So strange. Oh, come down here. They just started digging up the basement. I love the old hearth down here and I wanted to restore it. When it was built, it would have been like servants only down here, but I want to make it into a sort of speakeasy. If I just sweep aside some of this old ash, you can really get an idea of the way the room is going to look. Hold on. Wait a minute. It looks like there's still wood in the fireplace grates. Wow. It's really like walking into the past. Wait a second. This isn't wood. It's, huh. It's more solid and the shape is so funny. Weird. There's so many of these little sticks with rounded ends. Look at this. Oh man, there are hundreds of them piled up back here, stacked in a giant X. What do you think that is? Were they like, like storing them? This is really ineffective wood. It's so small. It's almost like, like bones. Hundreds and hundreds of bones. What was that? This house predates Aunt Marjorie, obviously. Before her, it was owned by a doctor and his wife. Wait, was this written on the back wall in soot? Names? I can't see. I have to walk into the hearth. Ugh, I hope the chimney doesn't have birds in it or anything. Yeah. They're names. Avery, Isabel, Archibald, Matthew, Emily, and Francis. That was Marjorie's brother. He died as a child. They took him to get his tonsils removed and he just never woke up. The doctor said it was a freak occurrence. Perhaps he reacted poorly to the ether. <gasps> do you think, do you think that happened here? In this house? Was this doctor killing children? There's that noise again. I think it's coming from the chimney. I have to take a closer look. There's definitely something up here. Just, just a little more, hold on. Oh my God. Hello. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. 
What are you doing up here? Are you okay? Just hang on. We're going to help you. Just take my hand. Just reach out and... Wait. What are you? Oh, no. (gasps) I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And... We We would be dead. Open-ended. You guys, tell me what you think. What kind of ghost monster was it? What are you? Ew, why would anybody, like, looking up there and be like, hello, <laughs> fuck <laughs> off. What was this person's name in the story? I don't oh, remember. I didn't God. give her a name. I only gave Aunt Marjorie a name. Hello, what are you doing up there? <laughs> I don't know, Candace, probably terrorizing you. Candace. <laughs> Poor Candace. New home, new me. She's just trying to restart her life. Get out of here. God damn it, Candace. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. Happy back to school. Ooh. Spoopy school. <laughs> you guys, you get so much more of us now. You're going to get sick of my face. In this last and hectic week of summer vacation, we decided to do one more campfire story do-over. And this time it's a story swap. Whoop, whoop. Yay! Leslie and I will each tell a story for your enjoyment. And to be honest, Leslie, I've been so stressed out recently trying to get everything ready mm-hmm. for back to school. Yeah. And like keeping the podcast going that my enjoyment is really hitting some pretty low levels. Yeah, and you're pulling from me too. I know. So I'm just I'm like, drained. It's like nothing. Nothing. No enjoyment. And resting bitch face is not good for business. Mm-mm. It wrinkles your brows. It makes people think you're judging their outfit. But there is one cure, and one cure only, for such a facial malady. Do you know what that is? No. I've never... I don't know. I know. It's brand new this week. Wow. It's a little pumpkin spice scented validation. Oh, my God. Blew your mind. What? Added pumpkin spice. Ugh. Because it's September. This is amazing. I know, right? Pumpkin is so moisturizing. Is it? It just adds an extra benefit. Of course. Yeah. Oh. Well, I love that. It's exfoliating and moisturizing. I do have your pumpkin soap, and I love it. That's why it's amazing. Are you coming out with more of it soon? Yep, in October. Yes! Shore Soap's pumpkin soap is like a delightful staple. You should all buy it. It is really good. Anyway, we all love pumpkin spice, and the time has come. And dear fiends, you can help! That's right. The best way for you to up our validation meter is to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. That's the only way to move this podcast forward, and it makes us more pleasant to look at, which you want, given the fact that we do video content now. Yes. So, going to want to look at these faces mm-hmm. and have them be pleasant faces. So, leave us a review. Five-star. Friendly. <laughs> yeah. I swear to you, this matters way more than anyone thinks. Ratings and reviews open doors, plain and simple. 
And if you want a little more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to Patreon, where for a little monthly donation, you will receive access to our extra monthly mini-sodes, our patrons-only podcast 30-minute horror movies, a little gift from us, our weekly video after show, Host Mortem. Ooh. Yeah, brand new last week. That was really fun. Discounts at our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feed to your social media feed. Tell us when you're listening. Post about your favorite episode. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell the lady at Michael's that shoots you a knowing glance while ringing up your not-at-all-too-many fall decorations. Then your friends and that lady who definitely has the same acorn lights and glass pumpkins as you can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. What's her name? Beth Ann. Beth Ann. That's good. Oh, I like it. Oh, and be on the lookout for the return of our campfire stories this month. Really miss those live nights. They are so much fun, and we have a live and in-person Halloween show in the Cape May area that we will be announcing very soon. Mm -hmm. So jazzed for that. I think there's going to be costumes. There's going to be stories and so much fun. I can't wait. I can't wait either. I love a costume. Me too. And you guys should too. And And I love a party to wear it at. (laughs) Same. Yeah. I mean, you guys, this is going to be like – It's going to be a really fun night. Yes. So we'll have more about that probably next week. I think we're solidifying details in the next couple days, and then you guys will all get to know about it. I hope to see all your faces. That is so fun. We will take all of the COVID precautions as we Mm -hmm. want to keep you all safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it. Yeah, that's all. That's all I got this week. Do you have anything to add before we begin? No. 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 All right. All right, then. On with the show. But I'm not starting it this oh, week. Oh, you are not. That's me. Yes. So oh our goodness. story swap, I'm going to give it to Leslie first because you hear my big mouth so frequently. I figured I'd give I'm her sure the chance. I'm sure they don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> but you scare me now. I scared you. That's true. Okay. Here we go. Ooh. In the sleepy town of Stratford, Connecticut, sits a beautiful mansion at 1738 Elm Street. Inside the home... Two men stare at each other across a table in a darkly lit room. The owner of the home, the Reverend Phelps, and a friend, a fellow spiritualist, have prepared a seance by candlelight. The two join hands and call out their various invocations to the spirit realm. Aside from some small, curious sounds easily explained as the creaks and groans of any average house, nothing was to manifest on that night. The two men shook hands, had a good laugh, and decided to call it an evening. Reverend Phelps walked his friend out, said one last goodbye, locked the door, and went to bed, unaware of the spiritual portal that had just opened. What? (gasps) First of all, a reverend is always scary. (laughs) Always terrifying. He probably had on like that big hat. Oh my God. The exorcist hat. The big black. (laughs) Just always wears it. All the time. Never (laughs) sleeps in it. Never. T- it's very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> Does not work well. It's like always folded in the back because he's sleeping on it. His wife's ironing it every day. <laughs> His poor, long-suffering wife. Yeah. <laughs> She's seen some shit. Ooh. So I'm really excited for this story because it's a hometown haunting for me. Yay! This is yeah. where I grew up. I grew up even playing on Elm Street specifically. So I remember hearing, I remember thinking that Nightmare on Elm Street was based I was on my town. I ask you. Yeah. 
And we had this haunted house, which is no longer there, but we had been told that there was a haunting. I think every neighborhood has, like, that's the witch house. Yes. Like, we all mm-hmm. have one. Yeah. So I was pretty certain that that is exactly where, like, the Nightmare on Elm Street happened. Freddy Krueger was there, terrified. You told the Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street story, though, yeah. on one of our campfire stories. We'll have to bring that back, and I'll do Candyman, and okay. we'll talk about movie stories. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Because that was a good one. Mm-hmm. But one of my best friends lived on that street, so I oh, was really? there constantly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she had, like, an old house, too, which was – the whole street is lined with a bunch of, like, these old – Love an old house. And, yeah. All right. So because I am a proud Stratfordian, mm. I am going to start with a little history. Oh, please. Stratford was settled by Puritans in 1639 and is situated on Long Island Sound along Connecticut's Gold Coast at the mouth of the Housatonic River. The town was named in honor of William Shakespeare's place of birth, Stratford-upon-Avon in oh, England. Oh, nice. Stratford's history lies within aviation, military, and the theater. Ooh, the theater. Like most quaint New England towns, Stratford is equipped with a picturesque seafront, which has a lovely restaurant on it called Knapp's Landing, Holly, <gasps> oh. a lively main street, and a history of witch killings and haunted houses. Oh, no. So, now let us get back to Reverend Phelps. Please. Not the swimmer. And his hat. (laughs) Reverend Eliakim Phelps was a 59-year-old Presbyterian minister who moved with his family from Philadelphia to Stratford, Connecticut in 1848. He and his much younger wife, Sarah Nicholson. Ooh, much younger. Had married three years prior. Both were widowers and both brought children into their marriage. It was like the Brady Bunch. Oh, The children were 17-year-old Anna, 11-year-old Henry, or Harry. I think I mostly call him Henry in the story. And a six-year-old son or daughter. I think it was the son. I don't know. It's very confusing sometimes. What's their name? I say this with uncertainty. Well, I don't know because I don't know which child it was. Sure. So I say this with uncertainty because the story mainly focuses on Anna and Henry or Harry. And Eliakim had four of his own children with his first wife, and Sarah had three children with her first husband. Oh, no. That's a lot of children. But I don't think that all the children came with them to Stratford. Probably not if they were older. Yeah. Um, Some of Eliakim's kids were old enough to be on their own. They had already, like, they were already in professions and married. Well, back then, like, 16 was old enough to be on your own. Mm -hmm. Or less. Yep. And Anna, who I think in when the story really begins is 17, but mm-hmm. right now when they move, she's probably like 15. So she's still a little young. Got it. Um, some of Eliakim's kids were old enough to be on their own, and they may have stayed in Philly or with family in Massachusetts. He also comes from New England area, a lot of family in Massachusetts. And they may have just been there to work or continue school. But Eliakim and Sarah did produce one child together, a son, Eliakim Sidney Phelps, that they called Sidney. They had one child together, and they were like, let's let's name it after Dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. And he was about two or three years old at the time the story takes place. Oh, man. That's an old dad. Yeah. Okay. So the home they purchased was beautiful by all accounts. It was originally built by General Mattis Nickel as a retirement home for his daughter, Eliza, and son-in-law, Sea Captain George R. Dowdell. Ooh, a sea captain. The house was as eccentric as it was large, with a long main hallway that had twin staircases meeting on the second floor landing, resembling a clipper ship's upper deck, which was really cool. A Ryan Murphy show. They all have those, like, big Mm -hmm. windy stairways that meet in the middle. Yep. Eliza was able to spend some time in the home, but her husband unfortunately died at sea before his retirement. So 
The house went back up for sale, and in 1848, Reverend Phelps bought the large and roomy home from Eliza's father and moved the family in. God, there's a sea captain in my story, too. (laughs) Sarah Phelps did not love living in Stratford, though. The quiet town was hard to get used to after living in Philadelphia her whole life. She didn't seem fond of her neighbors, and she had she and her eldest daughter were reported as suffering from a nervous disposition. Oh, no. <laughs> it had only been a few years prior that Sarah's first husband had died, and then she got married to the reverend and was quickly pregnant with her fourth child. And I'm sure there was a lot of emotionally going on with her and her daughter, and it would obviously take them some time to get used to this slower-paced lifestyle and probably this old-ass husband. <laughs> yeah. That old guy needs some maintenance, I think. Yeah. So now, about two years have passed, and life wasn't getting much easier for Sarah. She had made some friends, but that's if you want to call them that. She had been reported as saying she did not like her neighbors very much. She just wasn't getting along. She just oh, she just really didn't like it there. She feels unpleasant. Yeah. Um, I think, if anything, as a reverend's wife, she tolerated people. Um, she tolerated that's how I. That's how it seems, because it's just like she did have— Women come over for tea parties okay. and stuff like she. She was a host, but I don't think well, she, she would really, have to be. Right? Yeah, exactly. But I don't think she. She just wanted to go back to Philly. That was it. I mean, I like Philly mm-hmm. a lot, so I get it. Yeah, but other than not having many friends, all was well in the Phelps home. Okay. On March fourth, eighteen fifty. So this is now two years later, right? Eliakim Kim and a friend were in his home enjoying a lively discussion on the topic of spiritualism. Ooh. At this time in history, spiritualism was gaining a lot of momentum because of the Fox sisters. We will cover the Fox yes. sisters. You and I have talked about them mm-hmm. before. Who, if you don't know, were three young women who made their money traveling as mediums and are credited for cracking the spiritualism door wide open for mainstream con- their consumption. story is nuts it is nuts that's a very boiled down like (laughs) oh i know i know because there's so there's so much to that story Mm -hmm. yep so reverend phelps was so i'm gonna call him eliakim now you call him whatever you want to call him eliakim was known to be interested in his peculiar take on the spiritual world so he and his friend decided that they would hold a seance to see if anything would happen which brings us back to the beginning of our story that's weird for like a a religious Mm mm-hmm Figure. They usually are like not very into ghosts. That's like kind of sacrilegious. I think that from what I can gather, he was interested in it because he was a reverend and like a Presbyterian reverend. And he was interested to understand the spirits and the demons and kind of use it as a teaching lesson. Interesting. And it was so popular at the at that time. Now, mind you, I also think that this story could be one of those things like a propaganda story okay. for him to be like, the fear of the devil is in you. But also, mm-hmm. he very well could not be a part of any of that. And yeah, so it's up for everyone Fair else enough. to decide. Just interesting. Yeah. All right. So six days later, uh, so remember at the beginning of the story, nothing happened after right. the seance. They were like, eh, okay. Well, we did that. We did that, okay. whatever. But as Catholics know, you never open a door. Do no. not play. See, my family background is Catholicism. And yeah. they're like, don't be fucking with spiritualism. Do not even look at that Ouija board. No. A Get devil it out will of your come house. out. <laughs> it's like, like right Good on the Good luck getting it out of the, the edge. It'll come back. Don't even look at it. Fucking don't look at it. So six days later, on the morning of March 10th, 
The Phelps family started their day like any other. They woke up early and got ready for their church service. Upon leaving, Eliakim locked all the doors and windows and took with him the only key to the house they had. Upon returning from their church service, they noticed all the windows and the doors were open. The house looked as though it had been burglarized with objects and clothes thrown about. Oh, no. Like, what the hell? Everybody was at church. Burgling shit up. Huh. Who knows? Cautiously entering their home, no one seemed to be in the house anymore. They looked around to see what was taken, but so far nothing of value was missing. They walked up the stairs to the second floor. All seemed quiet and fine until they walked into the master bedroom to find Mrs. Phelps's nightgown laid out neatly on the bed, sleeves over chest, just like a body in a coffin, and stockings at the bottom. Ew. I hate that. Imagine that's your clothes on your bed. I would never, I couldn't live in that house anymore. I'm done. Yeah. No, they let you put up with a lot. Totally freaked out, Eliakim sent his family back to the church for afternoon services, and he hid and waited upstairs in case the assailants returned. I guess, yeah, you think old people broke in and Mm -hmm. did this really weird shit with clothes. Yeah. He and Sarah thought maybe the neighbor boys were playing pranks. (gasps) Neighbor boys. Neighbor boys. And would return to do more damage if they thought the family had left again. He sat for a while listening specifically for the front or back door to open. Instead, he was startled by a commotion coming from the room below him. Uh Uh-oh. Was the burglar still in this house all this time? Maybe. The call is coming from inside the house. Some Velisca shit. He snuck downstairs to investigate, tiptoeing to the living room, but seeing and hearing no one. Just as he was easing up, another sound came from the dining room. No! Eliakim cautiously worked his way towards the room, with the sounds getting softer and softer. Upon entering the dining room, Eliakim was greeted with silence, and 11 lifelike effigies posed in various forms of devotion— created from the clothes of the Phelps women and stuffed with pillows and cloths from their rooms. Nope. Some of the figures were kneeling, some standing, some holding Bibles. No. And all completely still and focused on a tiny, dynamic figure suspended by a cord in the center of the room. What? Right? What kind of demonic figure is it? That's all it says. That's just how he says it. They don't just... I want to know. That's just... That's how he says it. Tiny demonic figure. So I don't know if like the other effigy was just like, like just more gross looking than the other ones. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it had horns. I don't know. He didn't say it was just hanging and they were all like posed. Well, now we all have to imagine that. (sighs) Let your imagination run wild. So Eliakim called the damn cops. Good. Good man. He reported the break-in and investigators were on the case. The Phelps were surely irked but truly believed that this was the work of kids in town trying to play a prank on the reverend and joke about his superstitious beliefs. I could see how you would put that together because what a weird specific thing to have happen. I'd be like, oh, somebody's really trying yeah, to fuck with We just had me. this seance. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them heard. We yeah. talk about it every, you know. Plus, like, your brain wants to rationalize. Yes. It doesn't want to think some weird that's supernatural just wild. thing. Like, that's yes. so much. Oh, you my know? God, that's the most. However, effigies were showing up constantly. Mm -mm. Weird sounds were being made with no explanations. And Eliakim woke up to his wife, Sarah, struggling to breathe because somehow a pillow had been taped around her head. Taped? Yeah. No. 
Ew, ew, ew. I hope they bulldozed this house. It is it would, did not go well for them. So Eliakim was pleading with the spirits to stop torturing them. After this occurrence with Sarah, whatever was in the house seemed to move on to terrorizing Anna and Henry the most. Oh, no. Anna was constantly being pinched and slapped, generally in view of the family with bruises and welts appearing on her arms and face. So, like, they were actually visually seeing, like, That's her like getting the, red. That's like the Bell Witch. Yep. It's very similar. Henry seemed to get the worst of it. It started with a small fire that started under his bed. A fire? Just like a small little fire that they were able to catch and put out. Weird. Luckily, it had been put out quickly before much harm had been done. Henry also complained of being pelted by stones and food in the house and around the property. Eliakim remembers watching a stone just hit him while they were driving away in a car. Ew. He was like, where is that coming from? There's rocks flying yeah. around. Another night, the family watched in terror as Hen- Henry was carried across a room by something invisible and dropped to the floor. Ew. And several times vanished, once found in a hay mound unconscious, once found outside, tied up and suspended from a tree. Ew. Like higher than like he would normally climb. Ew. And once found stuffed into the shelf of a closet with a rope around his neck. Ew, what is happening to these people? I don't know. I hate it. But then this whole time they're just like, well, it's like it, they're doing things, but like the kids aren't, their lives aren't fully in danger. I'm like, yes, they yes, are. Yes, they are. You have to leave. Ugh. So all of this was happening kind of fast around them. And they were like, right. the, what the hell? This is very you know? similar to the Bell Witch. Yes. The Phelps reported all this to the police, journalists, and anyone who would listen. Months had gone by and no suspects were showing up. Was this a spirit? Eliakim's brother, Abner, a prominent doctor in Boston, and Eliakim's eldest son, Austin, a theology professor, ventured down to see what this nonsense of a haunting was. Stories of the haunted Phelps mansion had been making their rounds in Philly and New England because it was just getting everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Abner and Austin weren't as impressed. They were mostly, well, because they were mostly embarrassed and they just wanted to put an end to the rumors. They were like, what is, what is my brother or dad like doing down there? He's like lost his shit. Oh no, yeah. (laughs) And he comes from, I was looking at their family tree and he does have several brothers and obviously with their children, but they all seem to be pretty prominent in that area around Boston. And I think his father was also a doctor. Mm-hmm. So they have these big names in the area. So like his his brother Abner was just like, what the fuck? Also, Eliakim. Abner is a great name. It is. Mm-hmm. They strongly suspected Anna and Henry as being the culprits, believing that the popularity really? of the Fox sisters were giving them ideas to oh. just like act up. They seem to be the brunt of many of the horrors happening around the house, and some of the neighbors and investigators also had this suspicion based on the reports and articles. They were like, well, if it's mostly happening to the kids now, like, maybe they're— Also, you're going to make the easiest You have to rationalize it. Yeah, every Mm -hmm. time. So when Abner and Austin arrived, they decided to isolate the children to see if the shenanigans would stop. And I think this happened to them several times. Like, people would come in and be like, you stay in this room, we're watching you, and if shit happens, we'll let you out. But if nothing happens, you're going to have a talking to. I'm sad for them. I know. But nothing did stop. Strange sounds and knockings were still occurring with no explanation. There was a point when Abner and Austin were on either side of a door and, like, knocking was occurring at the door. And they were like, well, it's not me. It's not me. Like, fuck. I hate it. Effigies and weird notes with symbols were appearing all around the house. Mm-mm. As times went on, everyone, including the investigators, became pretty convinced that they had spirits up in here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't only family members who witnessed these horrific events. 
A New York Sun reporter came to the house for a story in hopes of proving it all a hoax, but as he stood in one of the bedrooms with Mrs. Phelps and Anna, he watched Anna jerk her arm in pain and say she had just been punched, and sure enough, a welt began to appear on her arm Mm -mm. right in front of his eyes. So he, too, left a believer. The Phelps continued to endure the chaos for some more weeks. Objects randomly moving through the air, furniture overturning of its own volition, windows breaking, food materializing in strange places, sometimes pelting the family and strange noises sounding at all hours. Loud rappings, knockings, and poundings, as well as cries and shouts. It is getting— Leave! Why are you still there? Wouldn't you leave? Yeah, I would have left— Get out. I would have walked into the house. (laughs) Nope. My I've nightgown like, is on the bed. Whether it's neighbor boys or not, I'm out. I have to go. Going to Philly. <laughs> yes. Moral of the story, always leave. Just, why, why are you staying in that house? It's like Daniel LaPlante. Like, why Why are you guys hanging around? That's First awful. Canada, then blood sacrifice. <laughs> yes. Wow. We are really bringing everything back. We're also really jazzed that we have a Canadian listener. I know. I think it's one. Just one. Identify yourself, please. Yeah. I'm really excited. Just like raise your hand in the group. That's all you have to <laughs> yeah. do. Just like one of your little like emoji waves to be like, I'm the Hi. Canada. <laughs> Great. We love yeah. you. <laughs> so they were beginning to have enough at this point. At this point. <laughs> especially Sarah, who was, be- who was begging Eliakim to figure out how to get rid of the spirit or just sell the house and move back to Philly. I would love to be... In that house, I was just like, you have to talk to the spirit. (laughs) She's so unpleasant to begin with. And now she's like, get the fucking ghosts out. (laughs) Terrible. The neighbors started to believe it to be the ghost of Goody Bassett. A Stratford woman that was hanged for witchcraft and wizardry in 1651. I I bet there was no wizardry. (laughs) Probably pissed that she wasn't a witch in real life. But now that she is dead, can levitate humans and objects. Her hanging took place nearby the house. But honestly, this was a stretch because it really wasn't that close to the house. And it's just Mm. like, why is she bothering these people? Probably like a sad midwife that they killed for no reason. She has a good story. We could talk about her. Okay. Maybe in the after show. Hmm. Eliakim Kim was beginning to get frustrated and was scared for the lives of his family. Yeah. He tried having another seance with his friend, Why? Reverend Mitchell. That did not go well the first time. Well, he had it at his wife's request because she was just like, this is how you got them. Maybe you could talk to them and close whatever you're bringing Wait, in. also like, his wife didn't want to be there to begin with. Do we think maybe she had something well, yeah. to do with this? Maybe. Okay. Not much changed, but some new information was learned. The spirit had claimed to be a deceased male clerk who had worked with Mrs. Phelps back in Philadelphia. No. Okay. Some accounts say the spirit told Eliakim he had ha- he had handled some fraudulent accounts with Mrs. Phelps. And Eliakim cross-checked records and was able to prove this man did not did work with Mrs. Phelps that he was dead and that some fraud had occurred. So other than learning about the fraudulent activity, which to him was like proof of like, I see, I talked to the spirit, I didn't know about this, and now I like found out there was like some shit going on. He really learned nothing more about the spirit, about what it wanted, and how to get rid of it. Just that it was this like weird man from Philadelphia (laughs) that just came to be like, fraudulent claims. (laughs) What a a weird haunting reason. It just like came to be like, Hey, Mrs. Phelps, remember me? We work together. He's like, I'm going to do you a solid and make your your family's life hell so you get to go back to Philadelphia. Yeah. And deal with these fraudulent claims. 
I need these claims on the desk. Tick, yeah. tick. I might be dead, but. Get in your TPS yeah. reports. Let's go. And did you get my memo? <laughs> it like floats across yeah. the room. <laughs> Was sending messages and like holographics. So it's oh like. Oh my God. Get out of that house. But just like none of this made sense. And he was like, I don't know. I, so I called the spirit. I don't. I called I don't, him up I on the house phone. I was yeah. like, hey, what's up? Just doesn't make any sense. You're not making any sense, friend. So after the seance, the Phelps began getting messages written on scraps of paper signed by. And this is where it's just like, who was writing these? The wife. Sam Slick, Beelzebub, Sam. and H.P. Devil and others. <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> And they were all, they all had, so at this point now, they were no. Those are the names you picked. Yes. Terrible. So these notes were floating. Now, here's why it was weird, though, because the notes were floating from ceilings, and they would peer out of thin air, so that they were like, well, where are these coming from? And they're from Sam Slick. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Get out. Get out of here. Most of them had rude, blasphemous remarks on them. (laughs) Of course, all these notes have since been destroyed, so we'll just have to take the good reference word for it. Sam Slick would never be rude. It's not how he is. You know. <laughs> You're gonna have that name. Actually, I'm pretty sure there was one note that was written. It was um found on like the on the tea tray. Okay. When she had some guests over. Like who would have guests over in this house? I mean, I don't know. They, <laughs> they were probably they all kept... wanted to come. They were probably like, Mrs. Phelps, what's going on? <laughs> hey, Mrs. Phelps, maybe I'll see some weird shit in your yeah. house. But she, there was a note that popped up that she read and it had to do, I think it was like hitting on the ladies. <laughs> it was just like, hey there, ladies. Hey, ladies. Slam slick here. <laughs> so many fraudulent claims. <laughs> Sam's lick. <laughs> so ridiculous. So the Phelps decided to finally leave Stratford. Oh, God. How long did it take them? <laughs> I think it took them. Too long. It, yeah, too long. Um, it took them probably, I would say all this happened within like six or seven months. Okay. That's still too long, but it's not mm-hmm. even a year. So, yeah. all right. Fair enough. It's hard to move. Yeah. And I, I don't think I mentioned this in here, but they had tried, because they did think that the fam- the parents didn't believe that the kids were the masterminds behind this, but they felt like a spirit was like attached to them. So they had tried sending them off to school in Philly before. Like they were just like, just seeing. That is Mrs. Bell's being like, let's just try sending the kids to Philly. Like (laughs) see how they like it. I don't know. For sure. So that's where, but what had happened was, and some, they were still hearing sounds and things like that. Obviously they weren't being terrorized as much, but they were still getting sounds. There was these weird notes still popping up. But then I think that they had to send Henry back from whatever school he was in because weird shit was happening to him there. And they were like, we can't have this around the other children. So they sent him home. But there was like fire starting and all these other things. Sam Slick's going to find you. Mm Mm-hmm. So, before they left, Eliakim reported a piece of paper floating on his, to his desk while he was in his study. The paper said, when are you leaving for Philadelphia? <laughs> you have to do it in the Sam Slick voice. Sorry. Go ahead. You do. When are you leaving for Philadelphia? The Sam Slick's <laughs> voice forever. He lives on with Barbara Darley Bakelin in our gallery of characters. <laughs> to which Eliakim wrote back, October 1st. I want him to be Barbara Deli Baker. Yeah, there you go. Okay. October 1st. <laughs> Perfect. Sometimes we have too much fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, Eliakim sent the family to Philadelphia ahead of him. He wanted to stay and see what the spirits had planned because he was like, well, if they're asking. 
They have a plan. I want to see. Get Maybe they're going to have a party. <gasps> Maybe it's going to be a Halloween party. Maybe it'll just be me and Sam Slick finally together. <laughs> Sam Slick got you alone. So uh, all was quiet, though. Nothing happened. He assumed, he assumed that the spirits must have traveled with Anna or Henry because they had seemed to travel with them before. Anna reported no issues. Um, I even think that she ended up just, like, getting, I say this later, but she gets married, and she's, you know, 17 at this point, so I think she finds somebody who's like, I need to get out of this Oh, God, okay, life. fair enough. Henry, on the other hand, continued to be plagued by weird happenings, but after a few weeks, everything seemed to stop. The Phelps didn't stay away long, though. They all returned to Stratford that late spring, minus Anna, who had gotten married, According to most accounts, the hauntings continued sporadically at first, causing the Phelps family to just decide to permanently leave Stratford in 1852. Yeah. Uh, They sold the house to a publisher of the New York Sun, Moses Beach, in 1859. So that was like eight years later. Okay. Beach's paper, like many other publications, gained popularity with the Phelps story. Over the years, the story continued to circulate. Some people wanted to believe that it was the spirit of Goody Bassett. Most, however, believed Eli Kim's bored young wife and his stepchildren created the story to liven up their sleepy lives yep. in Stratford, and it's unclear if Eli Kim had joined the conspiracy or if his family duped him. I think it was his family. I think he was probably like, look at the ghost, and they were like, can we leave? Yeah. Please. Like, he is the dumbest reverend. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wish you had more money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But our story does not end here. Ooh. The Phelps Mansion went through several different hams. Hams. How many hams? <laughs> so many hams. Straight through them. <laughs> right through a ham. The pigs love a mansion. Sam Slick loves a ham. <laughs> it went through many different hands with no reported hauntings. Um, so it had been turned into like a school at one point. Too. Ew, their house? Their, it's no, a, it's thank a large you. house. So it had been turned into Still. just like a small school. Full of ghosts. Make it a school. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this the reporter had it first, okay. and then nothing happened. And then he sold it off years later. And then the person that bought it turned it into like a, a school. What if place. Ghosts, their ghosts love children and you made it a school and you just like fed them to the ghosts? Well, nothing happened. Okay. Nothing happened until 1947 when it reached the hands of Carl Caserta and his wife, who were both registered nurses, and turned it into a convalescent home. Okay. Nothing good ever happens at a convalescent home. I guess not. <laughs> it, doesn't feel, it feels like it's uh, not Ooh. right. While the Phelps Mansion was in the hands of the Casertas, there were several disturbing instances that took place. Mm. On several accounts, the residents and owners would mention how the buzzers and alarms would go off without a source. Several years prior, buzzers were installed in the home to call for servants and other help. So, like, intercom type things? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it was like that big home, so they had, they had like, an upstairs, downstairs yeah. kind of vibe. And sense. with the schools and everything in there, yeah. like, they were setting up and becoming more modern with yeah, that kind of talk technology. talk to people on the other floor. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. On one scary night, Mrs. Caserta was putting her son to bed in his crib. She draped a blanket over the crib to block out the light so he wouldn't be disturbed. She returned to work with the other staff members. After some time had passed, their silence was halted by a buzzer going off. They ran to the first floor to see who had pushed it, but no one on that floor could have. 
The staff had been with her, and no one was out of their beds. Uh-oh. That's when Mrs. Caserta smelled smoke. Oh, no. She ran to her son's room where she saw his blanket ablaze. Yeah, don't put a blanket over the crib, first of all. She ripped it off and got him to safety. What caused the fire? No one knew. We'll never know. Years later, the buzzer went off again, this time not stopping and no one on the other end pushing them. When Mrs. Caserta ran out to find the source of the buzzing, she instead saw her son sleepwalking and about to fling himself off the top of the staircase. <sighs> she grabbed him before he could. He was obviously startled and scared. Just yeah. like, what the <laughs> fuck? Go <laughs> <laughs> on me, mom. God, you're so weird. <laughs> Mrs. Caserta was thankful for whatever spirit was haunting the house. The spirit must be good, she thought, because without the buzzing, her son could have been dead twice. Okay, so maybe a good ghost. Mm -hmm. Many still believe it was the ghost of Goody Bassett protecting the young boy from the bad spirits in the house. Again, I bet you she was like just a midwife that was misunderstood. During the 1960s, the Casertas were struggling financially and could not keep up with the convalescent home. They decided to close down. They boarded up the windows and doors and left the house on Elm Street to the spirits. In the early 1970s, it was demolished, and we may never know what actually happened. If these accounts were of a spiritual nature or a hoax, if it wasn't a hoax, then we have to wonder, is Reverend Eliah Kim's Phelps portal to the spiritual world still open? (gasps) And does Shrafford have their very own hellmouth to worry about? Oh, no! You live near a hellmouth? Yeah. Does that make you Buffy? That's a Buffy thing, right? Yep. I did it. (laughs) I am Buffy or Willow. Yeah, whichever one. I want to be both. I think you can be both. Cool. I don't. I don't know much, (laughs) so I'm like, yeah, live your life, be what you want to be. Thanks, Holly. You're welcome. Ooh, that that was a story. Spooky one. Ooh. Oh, wait, I have something. I have a fun fact from 1850. Give me it. All right. Give me that fact. You want to know what the top song was? The number one song. Where'd you get that hat? Nope, not that one. (laughs) I'm going to sing part of it, and if you can join in, you let me know. I feel like I can't join in. Oh, maybe I can. Okay, go ahead. Camptown ladies, sing that song. Do-da, do-da. Camptown racetracks five miles long. Oh, the do-da day. Come down there with my hat caved in. Do-da day. (laughs) Come back with the pocket full of tin. Oh, do-da day. Go on, run all night. Oh, man. Go on, run all day. I'll bet my money on a bobtail nag. Somebody Somebody bet bet on on the gray. Gray? That was bay when I was little. It is. Uh, it's either one. I think that the gray is what it's supposed to be, but mm. then bay is like the slang. Okay. That was great. I wish you guys could have seen Leslie performing this song, hands on hips, looking like an old prospector, yeah. doing her thing. So, Camp Town Races was written and composed by Stephen Foster in 1850, mm. published in Foster's Plantation Medleys. Oh, no. I know. This song was Foster's second big hit after Oh, Susanna. Oh, don't you cry for me, mm-hmm. right? And gained immediate popularity. The tune of Camp Town Races was even used for a political campaign song. Hmm. Yeah. You got a little fact in there and everything. There you go. You're a pro. And my person was born in 1849, so, like, that's a nice bridge. Yeah. There you Perfect. go. Okay. Guess it's over to me now, huh? That was great. I love that one. On October 22nd, 2010, on Park Road in Richmond, London, an eyesore was demolished. An ancient, divey neighborhood pub called The Hole in the Wall had finally closed in 2007 and stood vacant until that moment when it was leveled 
so that the grounds could be turned into an extended garden for a large and stately local home. Its owner had decided to buy the lot next door, and the neighborhood had no arguments. Richmond was once a pretty rural town, but since then had been built up into a rather charming little village. This improvement would just be icing on the cake. However, a team of workmen would make a rather startling discovery that day. A few men who were carrying out excavation work at the rear of the old pub uncovered a, quote, dark, circular object, which turned out to be a woman's skull. Ooh. It had been, yeah, scary. It had been buried underneath foundations that had been in place for at least 40 years on the site of the pub's stables. It was immediately speculated that the skull was that of a woman named Julia Thomas, who had been murdered in 1879. And the coroner asked Richmond police to carry out an investigation into the identity and circumstances of the death of the skull's owner. Oh. <laughs> so, my story today is about the murder of Julia Thomas, otherwise known as the Richmond murder, sometimes the Bard's murder, I believe. Not 100% sure why. Hmm. Just the nickname of the time. And it's a journey, let me tell you. But we're also in Ted Lasso territory. Yes. It's that Richmond. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, here we go. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> the whole time I was like, oh, I can picture it. I hope it actually looks like it looks on Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me happy. Richmond houses many lovely parks and is on a meander of the Thames River. A meander is a large curve in a river caused by the erosion of the riverbank by the flow of water. So if you looked at an aerial shot of a river and it looks kind of like a ribbon floating in the breeze, mm -hmm. those curves are called meanders. Just around the riverbed. It's a meander. <laughs> this isn't super relevant. I just like love that fact and get yeah. easily distracted. It's pretty. So you get to know it. <laughs> Patron trip. <laughs> to, the, to the meander on the Thames River? Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll go there. That's where we'll to meet. To Richmond where we're like... <laughs> <laughs> in 1873, Julia Martha Thomas moved into two Mayfield cottages, which is confusing because she only lived in one cottage. In this case, the word cottages is used in the way we would use apartments. Hmm. So Mayfield cottages would be like her building, right. basically. Mayfield cottages was on Park Road in Richmond, London. The house was a two-story, partially detached graystone villa with both a front and a back garden. Here in America, we call that a yard. But garden is a lot nicer. Mm -hmm. I really think Americans should follow suit and, like, start using that. Be nice, yeah. Be like, come out to my back garden. Oh, so much nicer. That's so beautiful. And you're like, it's in my yard. Yeah. <laughs> you want to hang out in the yard? No. <laughs> no, I want to go in your back garden. Way better. Mm -hmm. Julia Thomas had been widowed twice, and following the death of her second husband, she moved into the little cottage all on her own which was, a, like, not super common in 1873, a woman living all by herself. She's like, I've already killed two men. I should just be on my own. I need a cat in my own place. <laughs> no, she was just unlucky. <laughs> Don't worry, there's killing coming. At the time, Richmond, as I mentioned, was not an extremely populated area of London. There were a sparse few houses, and right next door to Mayfield Cottages was the Hole in the Wall, which was the one and only local pub. Now, this building is... Fucking old. It had been there before the 1870s. I think it goes back even 100 years prior to that. So when it was okay. demolished in 2009, 
10, sorry, 10, 2010. It was extremely mm. old. It's bananas. But Julia was not a frequent patron of that pub, or any pub for that matter. Not, <laughs> a, good, not a good time, this woman. <laughs> Julia was described as a fussy and eccentric woman. She was by no means wealthy, but very much wanted people to think that she was. So whenever she left the house, Julia would dress up in her finest clothing and cover herself in as much jewelry as her small frame would support. Okay. I get it, girl. Yeah. It's fun to be fancy. For sure. Put on your cool stuff. Julia was also said to be an extremely difficult woman to work for. She was cruel and went through maids like water. This was not only because she liked her home to be kept in a very specific way, but also because she frequently traveled and did not wish to pay a live-in maid for the times in which she was not home. So she'd be like, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. I'm not going to pay you. Bye. Bitch knows what she wants. Yeah, but this also was a very irregular arrangement for, like, live-in help at the time. They just Mm. were paid to be there all the time. So being like, I'm not going to pay you now, was not a contract a maid would be used to entering into. True, yeah. It would make their lifestyle very difficult. The few neighbors Julia did have didn't know her very well and were quite used to seeing different women come and go from her home all the time, as well as seeing the home standing empty for weeks at a time. Now, this kind of thing would have been unusual for, like, just about any other household at the time. But in this specific case, it was not, which did not work in Julia's favor. Mm. Even though it was quite financially irresponsible for her to have a maid, Julia, who was lonely and really liked to look like a rich lady, insisted on having one at all times. It seemed that every girl that came under her employ was either unsatisfactory or quit. So in 1879, when a friend recommended a woman named Catherine Webster, who went by Kate, so that's what we're going to call her, when she recommended her to Julia, Julia hired her immediately without one question or a single bit of background check. Okay. Dumb. (laughs) Oh, my God. Never let people you don't know into your house. Lying is really easy. Anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. I can't even like do a babysitting service. I have to know people who are coming into my house. I know. I had to go through a lot of questioning when you first really hired me as you. your babysitter. I know. <laughs> anyway, Kate made a great first impression. She was described by like other members of the village as, quote, a tall, strongly made woman oh. <laughs> of about five feet, five inches in height with sallow and much freckled complexion and a large and large prominent teeth. <laughs> Lovely. <She's- laughs> Did they hire a horse? <laughs> kind of. I don't know. That's how they described her. First of all, they're like, she's huge at five foot five. <laughs> like, all right, never, no. She's just a mare walking through. <laughs> I get the impression that she was just like, she could, she would win a fight almost yeah. always. Mm-hmm. And Kate claimed to live an extremely humble life. And she told Julia she just, like, really needed a little help. She needed, like, a leg up. Kate told Julia that she, too, had been widowed. She said she had been married in her youth to a sea captain. Ooh. Just like in your story. With the last name Webster. And together the pair had four children. But all of them, the children and the husband, had tragically died. Oh, that's a lot of deaths. Mm-hmm. How, you ask? She couldn't say. 
Okay. Really? That's an impossible amount of non-murder tragedy for one woman to have endured at separate times. Even in 1879, when babies weren't named until they were two because they probably wouldn't live that long. But Julia bought this story because she felt that the two of them were bonded by tragedy. Right. They had both lost people. They're both single ladies trying to make it in the world. Right. She was on board. Okay. Little did she know how right that statement would prove to be. Had Julia done the smart thing and dug into Kate's background even the littlest bit before she hired her, she would have found a lot of colorful information. Ooh, fun. Yes. (laughs) Colorful. (laughs) Kate Webster had been born Catherine Lawler in Killeen County, Wexford, Ireland in 1849. And for those keeping track, this would make Kate around 30 at the time of her employment, with 54-year-old Julia as her boss. So 30 years old, widowed with four dead children. Very busy. Mm. There is no information about Kate's childhood, but it is generally assumed that she grew up relatively poor and took up drinking early. The whole story about the sea captain and the dead babies cannot be verified anywhere. There's no birth certificates, no marriage certificates, absolutely nothing. And I suspect that is because it was a total load of nonsense. But what I can verify is that Kate really loved drinking, fighting, and stealing things. Okay, yeah, but she is a widow with four dead children. I would also drink, fight, and steal things all the time. I'd be like, everyone in my life just gave up. Also, those are all lies, but still... (laughs) Her imaginary life is very sad, so she probably needs to steal things. I can't be a wife or a mother. I'm just going to be a thief. (laughs) Okay. Mind made up. (laughs) Yeah. And clean houses. (laughs) Where is Sam's leg? In December of 1864, when she was just 15, Kate was arrested and imprisoned for larceny in Wexford and came to England in 1867. In February of 1868, she was arrested again in Liverpool, this time for larceny, and sentenced to four years' imprisonment. Somewhere along the lines, she picked up the last name of Webster, though, according to court documents, she was never legally married anywhere, so I'm not Mm. sure how or when that happened. Just suddenly she had a different name. Kate was released from jail in January of 1872, and by 1873, she had moved to Rose Gardens in Hammersmith, West London, And on April 18th, 1874, she gave birth to a son who she named John W. Webster in Kingston-upon-Thames. The identity of little John's father, though, is unclear, as she named three different men all at different times. Okay. Yep. And they're, it's probably all right. It could, she doesn't, maybe she doesn't know. It could be Peter, Paul, or Luke. Could any of them. We don't know. Or maybe Mark. You love Mark. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One of these men, we only know by the surname Strong. Oh, yes. He just goes by Strong. That, that's Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark Strong. Uh, and then this guy was an accomplice for her in um, some of the robberies she committed. Okay, a little Bonnie and Clyde. Absolutely. She later claimed that Strong had forced her into a life of crime, and she had been, quote, forsaken by him and committed crimes for the purpose of supporting myself and child. Yeah. Sympathetic tale, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. For a horse (laughs) who lies. (laughs) You're a lying horse. So Kate moved around West London frequently using various aliases, which included Kate Webb, Kate Webster, Kate Gibbs, Kate Gibbons, and even her actual government name, Kate Lawler. 
While living in Teddington in May of 1875, she was arrested yet again and convicted of 36 charges of larceny. That is a lot. She just robbed everything. But she's clearly not good at it. No, she keeps getting arrested. You think she'd get better. Or pick another thing. Or was there more? Was it, I would like to know, did she only do 36 larcens? Or did, (laughs) (laughs) or, (laughs) or did she do like a thousand? And oh, well, only got caught for 36. It's kind of you to just believe she was really good at all the other ones. Yeah. She's not sympathetic. She's not the good guy in the story. <laughs> I just, you know, I'd like to know. You never, I don't know. I can't tell you. I can only tell you that she was convicted of 36 charges. And most of the times, if people are convicted of a lot of charges, there's definitely more. Yeah. So she was sentenced to 18 months. That's it for 36 mm. charges. She must that's have half. stolen like one tiny thing each time. Yeah, that's like half her. Yeah. So she was sentenced to 18 months in Wandsworth Prison, which sounds like witchcraft and wizardry take it place sure there. It sure does. And this is in southwest London. And Wandsworth is actually still an active Category B men's prison to this day. Okay. One of the biggest in London. Uh, not long after leaving prison, Kate was arrested again for larceny. Can't stop robbing. And Can't was sent- stop, won't stop. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Horse gotta live. Horse gotta rob. <laughs> gotta eat. So she was sentenced to another 12 months imprisonment in February of 1877. While she was away, her young son, John, was cared for by a woman named Sarah Kreese, a friend who worked as a part-time housekeeper for a woman named Mrs. Loader in Richmond. Ooh, she sounds rich. Mm -hmm. Brought her to Richmond. Yeah. In January of 1879, Sarah Kreese fell ill, and Kate, in turn, stood in for her temporarily at the Loader's house. Mrs. Loader knew Julia Thomas— as a friend, and she knew she was looking for yet another new maid. She went through them like crazy. Mm-hmm. And so she recommended Kate on the basis of the temporary work she had done for her. She, you could say, liked to load up. Load her up. Load her up. See what you did there? hmm So when Julia met Kate, as we mentioned earlier, she hired her on the spot. Okay. So immediately after Kate began working for Julia, things started to go sour. The women frequently fought, and Julia did not think Kate's work was up to par, as per usual. Julia was said to follow Kate around the house and criticize everything she did. So she would just walk around behind her and be like, you didn't sweep that floor good enough. Maybe polish that mantle twice. It's like Emily Gilmore. Mm, Oh, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) And so she would force her to clean and re-clean the same spots in the house over and over and over again. Now, this is a lot like the Pepin sisters. I was going to say, yeah. And in a similar time period, too. And they also ended up flying into a rage and murdering their employer. Ooh. So. When did that happen? I don't have the date, but I think it was real close in okay. time. But just, like, maybe don't be a terrible asshole to your maid all the time. Yeah. That could be helpful. So this is, like, in A Handmaid's Tale, it'd be, like, Aunt Lydia. Mm. They all get real frustrated with her. Get out of here, Aunt Lydia. Stop telling me to clean the mantle again. The difference between Kate and the rest of the maids Julia had hired was that Kate wasn't having any of this shit. She would argue with Julia and defend the quality of her work. She also fought back when she scolded her. So if she was like, clean that mantle, she's like, no, it's clean. The hired help does not usually do that. Mm -hmm. So then Kate began stopping at the hole in the wall, the one and only local pub we mentioned before, for drinks before work. And therefore, she began showing up late and also drunk. The atmosphere in Julia's house became so tense 
that Julia would start having her friends and acquaintances come over to her house whenever Kate was there to clean so that she wouldn't have to be alone in a room with her. Mm. But also, she was probably just showing off the fact that she had a live-in maid. Mm -hmm. And I bet she was a dick about it. Of course. Bring in more things. Oh, clean that up. I bet she was super showing off that she had help. And like all of her jewels. (laughs) (laughs) Polish my jewels while they're on my neck. (laughs) I'm guessing this also did not go over super well with Kate. Yeah. So on February 28th, 1879, Julia finally told Kate that she no longer required her services. But Kate persuaded her to keep her on through the end of the week. She said she desperately needed the full week's pay, and Julia, being a not totally unfeeling woman, relented and agreed to keep Kate on until Sunday, March 2nd. Kate had Sunday afternoons off as a, like a half day, so she just had the afternoon off, but she worked the morning and the evening. What a weird okay. half day to have off. Mm-hmm. But she was expected to come back in time to help Julia prepare for the evening service at the local Presbyterian church. We all, everything links up this oh week goodness. so well. You're so good at it. I know. However, that evening, Kate was late because she had spent her afternoon, her like chunk of time off, at Mm. the hole in the wall, just drinking nonstop. And also, she had been fired. Yeah. (laughs) She was like, I give no fucks. I'm going to be so drunk. This caused Julia to be late for church, a fact which really fired her up. Mm -hmm. The two women quarreled, and several members of the congregation of that Presbyterian church later reported that Julia had appeared, quote, very agitated. When she made her way to the church. Well, yeah, because she, she had to walk there herself without her horse. Sorry. Wait till I put out a photo suite and you see her picture. You're going to be like, yup. See? <laughs> so Julia told one woman that she had been delayed because she was, quote, because of the, quote, neglect of her servant to return home at the proper time. Yeah. What a shit way to put that. She had no transportation. (laughs) And she said that Kate had, quote, flown into a terrible passion. Ooh. Yes. Which her late... Does that mean that she just was drunk? No, she was really, like, passionately angry. Okay. (laughs) She was just... It was sexy all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) Soap opera. Yep. So she fell into that terrible passion when her lateness was called into question. So when she was like, you were late, Kate was like, I'm going to kill you! She got really mad. (laughs) Julia came home from church early that evening because she was in such a state over the incident that afternoon. So she was like, I have to leave church. I'm done. I'm so mad. I have to deal with this. (laughs) She caught a case of the vapors. (laughs) She did. She arrived at the cottages around 9 p.m. and, still angry as ever, decided to confront Kate right then and there. In a later confession, Kate recounted the event like this, Mm. quote, Mrs. Thomas came in and went upstairs. I went up after her, and we had an argument, which ripened into a quarrel, and in the height of my anger and rage, I threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall, and I became agitated at what had occurred, lost all control of myself, and, to prevent her from screaming and getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat and in the struggle, she was choked, and I threw her on the floor. That now, adds up. However, thanks to you, when I said, when I started the quote, I just wanted to, like, neigh like a horse a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> and then I kicked her with my hind legs <laughs> off the bed. She said his quote, neigh. 
But that's that's not what she said. She said all those other terrible things. So to recap, Kate (laughs) threw Julia down the stairs, and then because she didn't want to go back to jail, she strangled her to death. I mean, that adds up. Right. She had no choice. No. It's terrible. It shouldn't have started Just a horse alone in the city. (laughs) (laughs) The neighbors said they, quote, heard a single thump like that of a chair falling over, but paid no heed to it at the time. Kate... Then, realizing she might also go to jail for, I don't know, killing her boss, decided she would dispose of Julia's body by dismembering it and then boiling it in the copper, the laundry copper, which is a large metal pot attached to a wood-burning burner Mm. that was used for boiling laundry. And she wanted to do this to make the body unidentifiable. And then she said she would try and take any bones that, I guess, came out in the boiling and burn them in the hearth. So this is like a little Leonardo Cianciulli, too, here. Yeah. She, distra- she described this act in her confessions like this. Oh. Nay. <laughs> Nay. <laughs> yeah. Quote, I determined to do away with the body as best I could. I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor, which I used to cut through the flesh afterwards. I also used the meat saw and the carving knife to cut the body up with. I prepared the copper with water to boil the body to prevent identity. And as soon as I had succeeded in cutting it up, I placed it in the copper and boiled it. I opened the stomach with the carving knife and burned up as much of the parts as I could. Does not sound like this was her first rodeo. No, it doesn't. You're right. The neighbors, of course, noticed an unusual, unpleasant smell in the days to come, which is never a good sign. Then, Kate developed another plan. I never said it was a good one, or that she was the brightest Edison bulb on the string, but that is neither here nor there. Do they have Edison bulbs then? I think. Maybe not. I really like them, though. So the image is nice to me. For sure. They're out on my deck. They're in the chandelier that we're recording under right now. Mm -hmm. So anyway, just enjoy that image. I, I am. Kate continued to clean Julia's house after this. She would wash her clothing and run her errands, like pick up her deliveries just to keep up appearances, while simultaneously packing the dismembered remains into a black Gladstone bag, which kind of looks like a really large old-timey doctor's bag, so it would have like a hard frame and snap shut, a big valise type thing, and a corded wooden bonnet box, both of which she threw into the Thames River. So most of like the mushy boiled body is in these things that she then throws into the Thames. Kate, however, couldn't fit the head and one of the feet into either two of those containers. She's like, well, got the head and a foot left over. Mm. So rather than find another vessel, she just disposed of them separately, throwing the foot into a trash pile because it was 1879 and trash disposal was not at its best. And the head was buried under the floorboards of the stable at the hole in the wall, where it was ultimately found 131 years later. Wild. Totally. Then, Kate got a little cocky. Hmm. She began wearing Julia's clothing and introducing herself when she was out of town as Mrs. Thomas. She told some of her out-of-town relatives that since she last saw them, she had married, had a child, been widowed, and had been left a house in Richmond by an aunt. Hmm. She also told them that she now went by the name Mrs. Thomas. Okay. So to recap again, she's going to steal Julia's identity while living in her home around a bunch of people who definitely know what Julia looks like 
in a time when radical plastic surgery is not a viable explanation. You don't know. You don't know a horse's life. Listen, <laughs> horse has the dress on. Yeah. Now she's saying she's a horse that is Julia Thomas. It's all crazy. It's wild. But little did she know that the box containing the pieces of Julia had washed up in shallow water next to the riverbank about five mm-hmm. miles downstream, just a day after she had disposed of it. It was spotted by Henry Wheatley, a coal porter who was driving his cart past Barnes Railway Bridge. Oh, that's why it's called the Barnes Murder sometimes. He discovered the body shortly after, shortly, sorry, before seven in the morning. Henry thought the box was probably full of stolen goods. He was like, ooh, this is like treasure. Someone mm-hmm. probably stole it and then like didn't want to get caught and disposed of it. So excitedly, he opens it up only to find a bunch of body parts wrapped in brown paper. You know, that was somebody's treasure. That was Julia's <laughs> One man's treasure. trash, another man's treasure. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. She needed that. It was a terrifying <laughs> surprise. Yeah. The discovery was immediately reported to the police, and the remains were examined by a doctor who found that they were the disemboweled trunk and legs, minus a foot, of a woman. Around the same time, a human foot and ankle were found in a trash heap in Twickenham, Again, just a heap of trash that Mm. exists out in the world. And it was clear to authorities that what they had discovered were several pieces of the same human puzzle. They just didn't know who that puzzle was. The doctor who examined the body parts thought that they had come from, quote, a young person with very dark hair. (laughs) Way to go, doctor. That's not true. An inquest on um, March 10th and 11th resulted in an open verdict on the cause of death, and the unidentified remains were laid to rest in the Barnes Cemetery on March 19th. Not being one to waste a body, though, the British government allowed the body to be used for dissection and anatomical study. And this is interesting because it's a very similar time period to Burke and Hare. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about this before. And side note, way later in life, Kate Webster would go on to be um, recreated as a wax model by Madame Tussauds, who also did Burke and Hare, and they were in, like, the same area of her museum. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Madame Tussauds every week now, apparently. Great. Until I get down to it and we cover her. Here's the kicker, though. Detective Inspector David Bolton, who examined the case in 2010, said, quote, a few days after the murder, some local boys, neighbor boys, one might even say, reported that Kate Webster had offered them some food and said, here you go, lads. I've got some good pig's lard, which you can have for free. And the boys ate two bowls of lard and went on their merry way. Mm. First of all, who the fuck eats a bowl of lard? That's disgusting. Second of all, it definitely wasn't pig's lard. Was no ham. No, (laughs) no ham. It was Julia Thomas. They ate a person? They ate bowls of the person lard. This is why you cannot trust food from a horse. A strange horse. With a ton of jewelry on <laughs> Wearing so much jewelry. And she said, nay. And they were like, cool, lard. Yeah. Mm. This is a terrible circumstance. This would make great soap. Back to Leonardo Tinchuli. There it is. This accounts for every part of Julia's body except the head. After the murder, Kate would say. Imagine those boys. I have part of Julia. <laughs> It's in my tummy. In my belly. <laughs> so, oh, no. Yeah, at that point in time, the police had like, okay, we can piece together everything except for we don't know where the head is. Whatever happened to those boys? I don't know. 
It was a rough time. It's like 20 years later, they're still like shell shocked. I ate fat of a woman. <laughs> that horse gave me people fat. And I ate it. Like, I liked it. I was about it. I liked it. I don't know. <laughs> After the murder, Kate would stay in Julia's house, wear her clothing, and pose as Mrs. Thomas. She accepted packages in the mail and spoke to a salesman who came to the door, all the while intending to just quietly adopt the life and identity of Julia Thomas in her own home. But, like, this uh, this is the stupidest plan, in my opinion, because her neighbors are the same. They're not going to be like, yeah. oh, yeah, you look different. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Kate, however, again, not, not the smartest of all people, and she began to get sloppy. Julia's neighbors started to get suspicious as they noticed far more people coming in and out of the house, and not just to visit. They were taking furniture with them. Hmm. Julia's next-door neighbor and landlady, Mrs. Ives, asked one of the gentlemen taking away the furniture who had asked them to do this task, and they replied, Mrs. Thomas, and pointed across the lawn to Kate, who probably, I imagine, went, and ran away. Yeah. Kate, as it turns out, was selling off Julia's things for a profit. Realizing that she had been exposed, Kate then fled back to Ireland. After Mrs. Ives reported Kate's activity to the police, they put the whole thing together relatively quickly. Police in Ireland caught up to Kate, and she was arrested there on March 29th, and then returned to London, where she stood trial at the Old Bailey in July of 1879. At the end of a six-day trial, Kate was convicted and sentenced to death for her crimes. Kate tried to avoid the death penalty in a pretty creative manner, though. In those days, much like in a wedding ceremony, when a person was sentenced to death, the judge would stand up and ask them, is there any reason why a sentence of death should not be passed upon you? And they had the opportunity to answer. So it's very much like the last ditch, if anyone has a reason why these two should not be joined in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace. Mm -hmm. Same type of thing. Usually people just kind of say like, um, I don't particularly want to die, so maybe don't kill me. I'd rather not. No, thank you. But Kate had other plans. She told the judge that her life should be spared because she was with child. And while she may have committed a series of unspeakable acts, the child inside her was guilty of nothing. The judge agreed that that was a pretty good reason not to kill her, but that in his 32 years on the bench, he had never encountered such a situation and was a little stumped with how he should proceed. Eventually, the judge's private clerk suggested an antiquated affair called a jury of matrons, wherein 12 women in civil cases and 6 women in criminal cases, depending on which one you had, had to testify that a woman was quick with child, which meant that they could feel the movements of the baby externally. That's what had to happen. 12 women had to do that Mm -hmm. for her to be given a legal consideration. So, like, you're legally pregnant. Usually, this drawn-out production was used in cases where a woman was recently widowed and wanted her unborn son to be able to claim sole heirship of his late father's fortune. And considering how old this thing is, like it's really, really old, it was also used when dealing with nobility. Say you're the king's mistress, and he dies leaving you pregnant. If you have a son, well, suddenly your life is considerably better than it was a couple of days ago, and you can all start whistling, I just can't wait to be king. But there has to be proof. And 12 women feeling a baby kick was all the proof you needed back then. Was it also just, like, timing-wise, being like, okay, you were, like, timing-wise, like, if they could feel the kick and, like, from when the husband had died or they were the not person great had died— at- calculating pregnancy lengths when this was set up. 
This practice also remains legal astoundingly until 1931, which is crazy. Mm. Well, it probably got more advanced by that time. Like, they could really feel a kick. Then, like, they knew what really to look for. Really just touch it and know. Which, all of this is absurd, and we'll, we'll loop <laughs> oh, back around yeah. to it. And so 12 women and a surgeon were sworn in and put in a room with Kate and her supposed baby. They came to the conclusion that she was absolutely not pregnant. Just really, 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 really didn't want to die. Now, I know you're all thinking, but what if she was too early in her pregnancy to feel the baby move? Well, what about that? The Obstetrical Society of London agreed that this was a wholly ineffective, expensive, and drawn-out way to try and prove a woman was pregnant, but this trial had two things a normal jury of matrons was missing. One, a surgeon. That was an add-on, and I bet you that guy had a slightly more effective way to check out her situation, given that if Kate had been pregnant, given the amount of time she had spent in a jail cell, she would have been about 20 weeks along. And that's saying that she got pregnant, like, the day she got arrested. Mm -hmm. And two, a confession. After this whole charade had run its course, Kate confessed to the murders. But before she, before she was executed, Kate actually made two confessions. In her first, she implicated a man with the last name of Strong, the purported father of her child, John Webster, who she claimed had helped her with the murder and responsible was responsible for leading her into a life of crime. She said that before, remember? Yes. That sounds like her. No. Kate then recanted her previous statement on July 28th, the night before she was to be hanged, making a second confession in which she took full and sole responsibility for the murder. Kate was hanged the following day at Wandsworth Prison at 9 a.m., where the hangman, William Marwood, used his newly developed long drop technique to cause instantaneous death. Now, this is far more humane than its predecessor, where the guilty party would just dangle and strangle, sometimes for half an hour or more. After Kate was pronounced dead, she was buried in an unmarked grave in one of the prison's exercise yards, which okay. strikes me as insane, given the fact that there were places to bury prisoners, and the exercise yard of a prison was not one of those. Hmm. And Wandsworth is still there, so, like, her grave is just in the middle of the exercise yard, still. Weird. Super weird. But this is not the end of Julia and Kate's story. For many, many years, 131 to be exact, Julia's head could not be found. Until October 22nd, when it turned up in Sir David Attenborough's back garden. Mm. Oh, did I forget to mention? It was Sir David Attenborough, famous and respected English broadcaster, author, and natural historian, and the host of a great many science, history, and natural preservation television series over the years, including the recent Planet Earth, that had purchased Mayfield cottages and the land surrounding them, including the old hole in the wall. Sir Attenborough certainly had the means and curiosity to encourage the police to figure out who had been buried on his property. Mm-hmm. Carbon dating, carried out at the U University of Edinburgh, dated the skull to between 1650 and 1880, which is an awfully wide berth. But the fact that it had been deposited on top of a layer of Victorian tiles suggested that it belonged to the end of this era. The skull had fracture marks consisted with Kate's account of throwing Julia down the stairs, and it was found to have low collagen levels, which are consistent with being boiled. Hmm. Mm-hmm. In July of 2011, the coroner concluded that the skull was indeed that of Julia Thomas. DNA testing was not possible as she had died childless and no relatives could be traced. In addition, there was no record of where the rest of her body had been buried. 
the coroner recorded a verdict of unlawful killing, superseding the open verdict recorded in 1879. The cause of Julia Thomas's death was given as asphyxiation and head injury. The police called the outcome, quote, a good example of how old-fashioned detective work, historical records, and technology, technological advances came together to solve the Barnes mystery. The skull was interred in an unmarked grave at Richmond Cemetery on August 24th, 2011. Wow. Yeah. Looking crazy horse. Right. That's probably why they buried her in an exercise yard. Because she was a horse. She was a horse. Fair. They were like, well, she'd like it here. <laughs> it's exercise. <Yeah>. Open. <laughs> a lot of people coming yeah. by. <laughs> oh. Wow. Um, so I looked up Edison bulbs, and they were um, available commercially in 1879. Oh, so there my my random, like, Little turn of phrase yeah. was appropriate. Great. There you go. I did it. Pat, pat, pat. So that was, those are our yeah. fun I didn't remember. I, well, I remembered the head showing up in the garden of somebody that is, mm-hmm. like, known. I yeah. remember that part because um, that seems so British. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is in my back garden. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently that pub had been built, I think it's because the the, like, Time gap given was started in the 1600s, so I think that building was incredibly old. Yeah. I think it had been, like, a very early pub. It was around for, like, a super long time. And part of me was like, oh, you knocked it down? But apparently it was not in good shape. No, probably not. And they came to – they didn't – I mentioned it earlier in the story, but they don't really figure out that what she had done was taken the head to the bar, gone out to the stables, went in a stall – and put it under the floorboards, mm. and nobody found it there. Right, it's just so weird. I'm like, that's the that's the bar she's at all the time. You didn't like look around. Although I guess you wouldn't rip up the floorboards of the stables, and it no. already smells in there, so it's not like you're gonna know. Right. I mean, she knows how a stable smells. She hangs out there all the time. When <laughs> when asked for a quote, she was like, "Nay." <laughs> just just, just stomped it. it out <laughs> to count things. Great. Perfect. Toast? Toast. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to toast Mrs. Phelps because I think she did it. Yeah. She's very guilty. Yeah. I think she did too. Um, Sam Slick. Was that his name? <laughs> Sam Slick, yeah. Beelzebub, and HP Devil. HP Devil. Sam Slick is my favorite, obviously. Yeah. He's it's now my late night ra- radio alter ego. For sure. It's Sam Slick one. here. Sam Slick from the Wildwood Boardwalk. Never. <laughs> Not the Wildwood Boardwalk. Get out of here. Who can we toast in your um, story? I would toast. Maybe um, poor Reverend Phelps, who genuinely thought he had ghosts. I think. He, He's like, guys, know. we have ghosts. Oh and they were all God. like, okay. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Goody Bassett. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. Let's talk about her in our um, patron content. Mm-hmm. So, you guys, if you're patrons, after this, you can hop on over to Patreon, and there will be a video yeah. of our wrap-up for this case for, for the sure. week. We talk about any random any, shit that happens. Anything. Sometimes our nail color. I don't know what we talked about last time. We did stay on <laughs> we did, point yeah. most but of the time. Let me just say things. Yeah, sometimes we do just say things. But, um, okay, so let's toast. We can toast Mr. Phelps or Reverend Phelps. And... Uh, and Goody Bassett. Okay, so cheers to that story. And then, oh man, Julia. I guess Julia. I yeah. mean, she did get murdered. She was yeah. very unpleasant, though. 
she was unpleasant, but she didn't, she just seemed, she seemed hard to work for. Yes. But she was going through her own shit. She was going through it. Yeah. Agreed. And David Attenborough. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. way to go him. And even to, like, the detectives in this one, because it seems yeah. like they, like, did what they could. They sure did. And to those poor boys at so To the lard is, boys. To the lard boys. <laughs> Do you, this is how I imagine that going. This crazy woman <laughs> handing them a bowl that they're just like, ooh, a bowl of food. Like, maybe a bowl of mush or something. A bowl of mush. A bowl of mush. And they're just like, all right, whatever. And then they're just like, this is lard. And they probably take one bite and they're like, mm, this is good. And then they, like, toss it because they're like, this is just fat. I'm eating fat. Uh, I don't or maybe, know. like, I don't know if people could, ate that. Pig lard is, like, bacon. It is, maybe but it's it not like, bacon. No, but it's, it's not. It's, it's the person grease. lard. Ew. It's, like, what you cook bacon in. I don't want it. Uh. So. Tears to the lard boys. Poor lard boys. <laughs> Tear below neighbor boys. Yeah. Got and neighbor. and we have a patron this we week. We do. Kelly Cunningham. Kelly. Come on down. <laughs> Cheers to Kelly Cunningham. I love Kelly. Hooray. And if we were overwhelmed by old-timey demons and horses. Clerks. (laughs) We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Sam Slick loves a ham.